of the Babylonian captivity. So Haggai, two chapters, we'll cover the whole book, and uh, it's very, very rich. Father, I do pray that you just bless this time in the study of your word. I pray that you would, uh, Lord, touch our hearts, because this, this book, even though it's short, um, it, it is so applicable to us today. That, Lord, there is something to build. There is a work to do. And because of cares of life or busyness of life or because we get discouraged, we can turn inwardly and forget about that. And, Lord, perhaps you're going to speak to some that, that you are saying to them, it's time to get back to the work of the Lord. Lord, we are in unique days. We know that. We want to be used of you. We want to run our race well. We want to run it with joy. We want to finish our race well. So, Lord, speak to our hearts as we look at this, this book of Haggai. Bless everyone that is listening in. And, uh, Lord, may your word, which is alive, touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, the nine minor prophets that we've looked at and studied, that they were speaking to God's people before the captivity of Assyria and the house of Israel and the house of Judah later on. And it, it would correlate, as you read those historical books of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, as we look at the last of the minor prophets, the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, all of them are addressing those who have returned from this 70-year captivity. And these are the last of the prophets coming on the scene to God's people. Now keep in mind, from Malachi to John the Baptist or the New Testament, there's a period of 400 years. They are called the silent years. And the silent years were no prophet on the scene. Uh, There's no books that were written uh, that we have in the canon of Scripture during that time. Uh, And then after the silent years, John the Baptist comes on the scene. He ends the the prophets. But this is a very uh, interesting book. Again, a lot of these minor prophets get ignored in the Old Testament, only two chapters long. But as he is ministering to the people that are coming back to Jerusalem, and you can look at the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra speaks at this time. Matter of fact, these last three books correlate with the historical books of, uh, of Ezra, uh, particularly, and then Nehemiah, who came after that, who would build the wall around Jerusalem, and then also Esther, uh, the story of Esther. Those are all historical books of the, the past uh, or post-exile uh, account of what took place when they came back from the captivity. So as they would come back, again, to remind you, and we'll, we see this in the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, in chapter 4, we read the story about how the Medo-Persian Empire would defeat Babylon, take the city of Babylon. Belshazzar, who was having this feast, that Daniel comes out and he interprets the handwriting on the wall and says that your kingdom's going to fall tonight and you're going to die, Belshazzar. And Cyrus, who was outside the city walls on that night that they're having this big party, that Cyrus would divert the flow of the Euphrates rivers as prophesied in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, if you recall in those chapters 40 
uh, 3 and 44 uh, of Isaiah, that it was uh, Isaiah naming Cyrus by name, saying that uh, the Lord, that Cyrus, you are my servant. That's in chapter 44, actually, the end and beginning of chapter 45. And that uh, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, as you in chapter 44 of Isaiah, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built into the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And that's a prophecy that was given just nearly uh, 200 years, 150 years before uh, the, the actual prophecy took place, about 200 years. So Cyrus, who took over Babylon, would make the decree in 536 B.C. So the captivity begins in 605 B.C. when they took Daniel off into captivity. Seven years passed, just as Jeremiah had predicted and prophesied in his prophecies. And now Cyrus says you can go back. And what they did was there was a number of people that went back, just under 50,000 as you read the book of Ezra. Now that seems like a lot of people, but it was a very few people when you consider there was two to three million that were there in the captivity that were in Babylon, in Persia, in those areas. Most of the people, a far majority of the people stayed because they were doing well. They, they became shopkeepers. They had businesses. They were doing well. You remember that in that letter in chapter 29 of Jeremiah, that Jeremiah said, this is what you're to do. You're to build houses. You're to plant gardens. You're to have children so you don't die out and live in peace in the land. And that's what the people did for 70 years. And as they chose to stay there, going back to Jerusalem would be a, t- a daunting task. And many of them, most of them, had never been to the city of Jerusalem, never seen it. So about 50,000, led by Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and Joshua, the high priest, that we see that as they go back, they are given the, the decree that they can rebuild the temple. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 44, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So this is what they did. They, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then the adversaries of the Jews came along and said to Zerubbabel, listen, we want to help you. We want to be a part of this work. And Zerubbabel said, no, we, we don't want your influence. We don't want your influence of your paganism. This is a work that we are going to do. We're building the house of the Lord. So they got upset. And, of course, they had hidden agendas in wanting to help. So they write a letter back to the king, and they say that the Jews are rebelling. So Darius is on the throne. Darius sees that letter, and he says the work has to stop. So word goes back to Zerubbabel, cease from building the the temple because we're told that you're rebelling against us and all of this. It would be then Zerubbabel that would go back to Darius the king. And you can read about this this, um, event, you know, and all this that took place as recorded in the book of Ezra in chapters 4 through 6, that it was Zerubbabel that wrote a letter back and said, listen, There is a decree by Cyrus that said we can come back and rebuild the temple. We had his permission. We're just doing what he has allowed us to do. And so they checked the archives. Of course, there's the decree by Cyrus. So Darius sends word back to Zerubbabel and says you can resume the work. Matter of fact, uh, we're going to send some people to help to watch this. You guys adversaries better not interfere with that work. 
Well, then what happened was is that the people had turned inwardly and they just forgot about the work of the Lord. So the work of the Lord would lay dormant for another 14 years. So from about 534 B.C. to 520 B.C., the, the foundation of the temple had laid dormant. And one of the things that we'll see next week when we go into the book of Zechariah, that Zechariah receives these visions. And one of the visions was that Zerubbabel, that the hands that laid the foundation of the temple are going to be the hands that finish the temple. It's all by his grace. Don't despise the day of small things. Uh, and uh, know that it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. But the people, what they did is they were focused on building their own houses, their panel houses. And here comes Haggai. I find it interesting that the dates are given here in Haggai when he gives these prophecies. And his ministry lasted only about four months. And I think about that. And the people responded. They get back to building the temple in about 520 B.C. They finish it in 515 B.C. And it wasn't as grand as Solomon's temple, but uh, we'll look at that and what Haggai has to say. But they responded to the message of Haggai. I think about Isaiah, who ministered for 40 years. Not four months, but 40 years. Same with Jeremiah. His ministry was 40 years plus. And the people didn't respond to their message to turn back to the Lord. So Haggai here, it's interesting. God uses us in different seasons for different messages at different times. And what we are to do is be faithful to that message that he has given us to give in the day in which we are living in. And sometimes there's a response of the people, and sometimes there isn't the response of the people. I think about Paul the Apostle and his missionary journeys, that he would go to some cities, um, and he would preach, and a church would be started. And God is working, and other times he'd be run out of the city, and nothing would happen. And we see that constantly in, the, in Athens, where he went there, and he addressed the, uh, the philosophers there on Mars Hill, that a church you know, didn't start. There was a few that believed, most mocked him. Then he goes 50 miles to the south, to Corinth, another city that was uh, of Greek influence, and he preaches there, and the church explodes. So God is responsible for the results as we are just faithful to give the message that he has called us to give. And as we trust him, uh, he is the one that is working. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So here is uh, Haggai. He comes on the scene. And after two years of building the temple, the foundation being laid, uh, all of a sudden it stops. It stopped for 14 years. Uh, the weeds are growing. Uh, the stones are beginning to... You know, the foundation starting to crumble a little bit. People turned inwardly, uh, worked on their own homes. And a, the temple uh, was, and the work of the Lord would lay dormant. Now, as you outline this book, chapter one, uh, you can outline it is that there is something to build. And then in chapter two, the, it is, you can trust me in verses one through nine. And then the rest of chapter two he confirms the blessing as you're doing the work of the Lord. And I think those, those are very, very important for us to understand, that there's something for us to build. The kingdom of God is being built, and we're living stones 
being put together, as Peter writes in his epistle in chapter 2, living stones being put together uh, for a holy habitation that is greater than any building. The first temple, the second temple, uh, it is a living temple of you and I, the church. And then uh, to trust in the Lord, to trust in the Lord and what he's called us to do and the work that he's called us to do. And then to know that there's blessing that comes with it. And so very important as we look at all this. Let's begin to read Haggai, that in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, again, a date is given, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shechiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadok, the high priest, saying, Thus speak the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Uh, as uh, historians look at this, the date that is given in verse 1, the second year king to rise in the sixth month on the first day would be likened to September 1st, 520 B.C. when this prophecy is given and, and passed to, uh, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, uh, to the people to get back to doing the work of the Lord. And I'm sure that Zerubbabel, that he's discouraged. He comes back, his civil leader, uh, they laid the foundation of the temple, uh, the captivity is over, we get to build, do the work of the Lord. What they had done initially is, as you read the book of Ezra, is they built the altar so they could do sacrifices before they built the temple. So the altar was built as they pushed aside the rubble. Now Solomon's temple was a grand temple. And so there's a lot of stones, a lot of rubble that is around Jerusalem was leveled by Nebuchadnezzar. And how hard and difficult and challenging that was, we see that in the book of Nehemiah that came later after Zerubbabel, nearly 100 years later in 445 B.C., and he builds the wall around Jerusalem. And the people were saying, there's so many stones, this is, this is too hard. The adversaries again were there trying to discourage the work that was being done. And listen, the enemy will always be there. We have an adversary, Satan, who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he'll do anything that he can to discourage us, to get our focus off the Lord, to deceive us in not doing the work of the Lord. So here is... Back in the land, there's no king over Israel after the captivity. I'm sure Zerubbabel and Joshua, who's the high priest, he must have been discouraged as well. He's probably thinking, I'm not a very good spiritual leader because the people turn inwardly and the work of the Lord has stopped. And so Haggai will have a message from the Lord that will be given to the people. And they were saying, it is not time to build the Lord's house. They were making excuses. And often today... The same thing can happen with us. We can make excuses. Well, I don't want to do the work of the Lord, and I'll think about it after this period of time or this season, or maybe when uh, spring comes, or maybe later in the fall, or after the kids get a little bit older. we got sports and all that that we need to do. We can come up with all kinds of excuses not to be about the Lord's business or to be serving the Lord to do the work of the Lord. Uh, I don't really need to go to church. You know, I've gone to church for a long time. There's all kinds of excuses. I think about uh, Benjamin Franklin. He, he said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses, who was good at anything else. So their excuses that here at this time was um, that as the land laid waste after 70 years of captivity, that the work is too hard. 
and the enemies are too discouraging. We see that in Ezra chapter 4. Uh, it was a lot easier in Babylon. We should have stayed back in Babylon. Of course, that was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They always wanted to go back to Egypt, and now they're saying it was easier in Babylon. It, it, they got it good back there. Uh, and other excuses are going to be pointed out here as we continue through this book. And as I said today, people in the church will make the same excuses why they can't help in the building of the kingdom and serving the Lord. And I don't want this book to be condemning. Listen, I know that we go through different seasons. That, Mom, you may be raising your kids in the ways of the Lord. You are doing the work of the Lord. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing, what God's called you to do in the season that you're in. Or maybe you're taking care of your elderly parents. Or maybe dads that you're working hard to provide for your family. That's honorable before the Lord. So I, I don't want this book to be uh, one that's condemning. Well, you're not doing anything for the Lord and you're not doing enough for the Lord. But are you in the place that God has called you to be? Are you doing it as unto the Lord? Are you being faithful to it and being sensitive to the leading of the Lord? Rather than just being, I'm going to live for myself, and I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to only do what I want to do in building my own house and my things and, and all of this. We can, we can do that uh, very, very easily. So here Haggai is going to expose the wrong motives that they have. In verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, is it time for you uh, yourselves to dwell in your panel houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. I, I really love that. Um, as the Lord uh, is speaking through Haggai, do you think that it's just time to just focus on your panel houses? Um, God had something to say about their excuses, their priorities. Is it okay for God's house to be in ruins while you're paneling your homes? Uh, isn't it a priority to take care of the things of God? Now Solomon, again, when he built uh, the temple, he built God's house first, and then he built his own house. And you have panel houses. Some scholars suggest that they had more than one house, that they had these country homes and all of this. And I'm not saying that you've got a cabin or something up in the mountains, and some of you do, that that's wrong. But I think we understand that, that they were neglecting the work of God. It wasn't important. It wasn't a priority. That living for myself is what is a priority and doing my own thing. And verse 5 is really... The, I think the theme of this book, and that is consider your ways. And that's something that all of us should do constantly, consistently, even daily. Consider your ways. I know for me, consider your ways. I have that underlined. What direction is your life headed? Examine yourself. And all uh, works are, you know, that we are doing just for ourselves are coming up short. And he expresses that, verse 6, that you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. So there's little harvest. You're not warm. You, you don't have any money. You're not satisfied because your priorities are all wrong. And how many of us have found that to be true? Or we know those who work so hard to get these things and these possessions and all of this, but yet they're not satisfied. And that's what Haggai is going to be expressing 
that the Lord says you're not satisfied because you neglected him, because you have your priorities that are all wrong. And that is true today. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. And I think that it's important for us in an honest evaluation to say, Lord, I need to consider my ways. Are there things that are priority over you? Are there things that are priority in, in I spend so much time doing and so much time invested in that I'm not really doing what you've called me to do and what you want me to do? So as we read verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Again, he says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. So when the Lord says something twice, it's important. And it is important that we do have a heart check to see our relationship with God, where it is, our priorities. And if we are not prioritizing the Lord and we're making excuses and drawing closer to him and knowing him and serving him. You know, they had left their first love. They were giving God the leftovers. And he says, go to the mountain, verse 8. And, and I like this. Go to the mountains and bring the wood. Uh, the commandment to build the temple. Don't say it's not time. The Lord says, get back to building what you're supposed to be doing. Quit putting your own desires above the priority of the Lord. It is time for you to be concerned with doing the work of the Lord, pleasing him rather than just living for yourself. Go to the mountains. And I think that's important for us to do as well as I was thinking about this. Go to the mountain. Jesus was on the the Mount of, of Beatitudes, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he's speaking to the people. And he begins to tell them how to live. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those, you know, who are poor in spirit. Uh, blessed are those, as he goes through the beatitude, uh, there's blessing. And he says that you're to love others. And he goes on and he speaks about how it is that we are to live, our hearts. Uh, and he says that as you go through life finishing that sermon there on that mount, they said, you be the wise one that that builds his house upon a solid foundation, that when the rains come and the wind blew against the house, the house was able to stand. He's liking the one that hears these sayings of mine and then does them. But don't be like the fool. The fool who hears these sayings of mine and ignores them is like the house that falls because it was built upon the sand. And as we build upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ, going to the mountain and hearing him speak to us how we are to live, how we treat others, our heart condition, all of that. I think about the mountain. I think about the mountain where Jesus fed the 5,000. That he would say to disciples, you give them something to eat. But as we feed upon the word of God to nourish us and to grow us, and then we have something that we can give to others. I think about the mountain that we just went over. Remember on Sunday that Jesus took that cross and went to the mount that was called Golgotha, uh, Golgotha, uh, which means the place of the skull, to Calvary, to Mount Calvary, and seeing our Lord dying for us, what he has done in bringing provision and forgiveness of sin and eternal life, and, and going to that mountain, seeing his love for you and for me. Go to the mountain and gaze into the eyes of love of Jesus who died for you, who loves you, who desires to feed you, who desires for you to live in a godly way and to serve him, to go the extra mile, 
to love the one that's your adversary, uh, to be able to, to minister to others in a way that is pleasing to him. And in verse 9, you look for much, but inward, indeed, you came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. And therefore the heavens above you withdrew, withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and new wine and oil, and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. So when God is neglected, nothing really works right. It doesn't bring much satisfaction. And they were missing out on the blessings of the Lord. Uh, the drought has come. And, and perhaps that, that, you know, we go through those seasons where we just are thinking about ourselves and living for ourselves. And again, we, we have jobs, we get busy, we have children we have to take care of, or we have responsibilities. But when we just live for ourselves and do our own thing, we're not very satisfied. And there can be a dryness that happens in our soul, a dryness that happens uh, as, as we just neglect the things of the Lord, drawing close to the Lord doing the work of the Lord. And he says that'll happen. And, and there's no wine or oil. speaks of joy. It, it speaks of those things. And whatever the ground brings forth and livestock and all the labor of your hands, it's not happening. It, it seems like, why am I doing all of this? I thought it would make me so happy. But I'll tell you where joy really comes from. And really true satisfaction and fulfillment. You know it. Most of you that are listening to this. And that is a close relationship with the Lord. To have joy in just being able to serve him and wherever the Lord has you and has placed you and how he's gifted you. There's such a joy and satisfaction in, in knowing him more and loving him more and reaching out to others and, and real purpose and fulfillment in that. So that's what the Lord is telling them. And then as we continue in verse 12, the people's obedience is being spoken of. That Then Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, as with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as their Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. I like that. Um, and then in verse 13, then Haggai the Lord messenger spoke to the Lord's message to the people saying, I'm with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and uh, the governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts their God on the 24th day, the sixth month and second year of King Darius. So they respond to what God is saying here. They obeyed God and they feared the Lord. Fearing the Lord just simply means to have a reference for the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is what the scripture says. Having a reverence for him, to honor him. Lord, I want to live my life in a way that is pleasing to you. So they respond in that way. And notice that here as we read this, that in verse uh, 14 that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and then also Joshua. It began with the leaders. It began with the leaders. And it will begin with you, mom and dads, in your family. I know that if me, if I just go through the motions and, and all of this and not interested in the work of the Lord, that has an effect on the rest of the congregation. And I am excited about what the Lord is doing. And I know that it has been challenging over the last couple of years. That's why this book is so 
um, encouraging to me and speaks to my heart. Because we had the mandates that at the beginning of COVID that broke out, that you can't meet, you can't, you can't get together. And then we began to get together. And then all the, the regulations and all these things and that we've gone through and had to maneuver. And it's so easy to get discouraged at this time. But here it is after two years. And all of us have felt it to one degree or another how it's affected our lives. And, and as I start this year... Here, COVID is as bad as it's ever been with the Omicron. More people have had COVID than ever before. We've had even those that we love very much in this fellowship that gone home to be with the Lord because of complications of, of COVID. And it saddens us, and it's very easy to get discouraged. But I know that the Lord is working. And I'm excited about what he's doing in these days in which we are living in. And there's so much to do. And, and I... I, I look at that and I think, Lord, I want to continue moving forward in what you have for us because you want to use us. And he wants to use you as well. And I don't want to make excuses. I don't want to just draw back. I don't want to, you know, just get discouraged or go through the motions and, and all of this. I want to press on. I want to move forward. I want to run my race well, even as we talked about in our series that we did and moving forward in difficult days, that Paul said, I know that difficulties await me, but I'm determined, my, my life is not its own. I'm determined to, to finish my race and run my race with joy for the ministry that's set before me of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to run my race with joy. I don't want it to see it as a burden or any of those other things as duty. I see it as devotion to the Lord. Lord, I want to be used in these days. Lord, I want to, to use you because, verse 13, I am with you. I am with you is what he says. And he's with you and he's with us, this church. And he wants to do so much. He wants to, to really use us in a way that is a powerful movement of his spirit in our lives. I'm with you, says the Lord. Remember Joshua? Joshua in the book of Joshua. Not Joshua here that's spoken of the high priest, but Joshua of Jericho fame in the book of Joshua. When they went into the promised land. And, and in chapter 1, as we discuss, that Joshua be strong and of good courage, for I'm with you wherever you go. And meditate on the word of God, and you'll be prosperous and successful. And where you set your feet, you'll possess it. And, and that reminds me, all through the scriptures, the promise of his presence, that he is with us. He is with us. And, and in verse 14, as he, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, it reminds me of what Paul writes in the book of Philippians, that is God that works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure. So the Lord encouraged and strengthened them to do the work, stirred the hearts of the people. They saw it in the leaders. They began to do the work of the Lord. And it's wonderful when, when God does that. So as we go into chapter 2 now, in the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, now the date is given, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, as the Lord spoke to Haggai a second time, nearly two months later, and a month after the work of the rebuilding of the temple started again, verse 2, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatiel, and Joshua, uh, the high priest, said to the remnant of the people, saying, as we read in verse 3, who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? So there were some of the older men that had remembered the first temple of Solomon. 
I mean, it was great splendor as you read First Kings, as you read uh, Second Chronicles, as Solomon used 80,000 workers that were in the quarry there. They're in the quarry, they're cutting the stones, and it's very interesting that it's recorded in the scripture that they cut all the stones there in the quarry and then sent them down to the Temple Mount and they put the stones together and they fit perfectly. Very ornate stones is what the scripture tells us. Incredible um, work that they were doing. And we know that there were 70,000 laborers there putting the stones together. There are 3,300 supervisors. I believe that there is 30,000 that were involved in going to Tyre and Sidon and helping get the timbers, and they would set them down the Mediterranean along the coast, put those timbers, sail them down, and then they would go to Joppa and bring those timbers up to build the temple there in Jerusalem. Incredible work. These guys, they come back with less than 50,000. And this second temple was not as glorious, nearly as glorious. It wasn't overlaid with gold or splendor. In Ezra chapter 3 describes how the old man wept. Others had joy when the foundation of the temple was laid. And the Lord is asking, you who saw the former glory, is this nothing? Is this not a glorious thing? It's a rhetorical question, of course. And the answer is, it is something. It is something. And, And sometimes ministers or pastors can get into the, the mindset of we got to have bigger and we got to have more grander. And one of the things that the Lord reminds me here at Calvary Chapel, we have a small building. We have a small building and a small sanctuary. And I, I think about even on Sunday when the second and third services are filling up and they're full and uh, there's not a whole lot more room that is left. And, and I think about that, especially with all the people that are, that are sick. And they're at home and staying at home and they're recovering from sickness. And, and I think how wonderful, it would be so wonderful if we did have more space, if we had a bigger building. But here's the thing, that's not what makes it glorious. What makes it glorious is people growing in the Lord and, and that people are serving the Lord and they're excited about the Lord. That's what's glorious. And it doesn't matter if we have a small building or a large building because the church isn't about buildings. And to be thankful for what we have. And, and to you know, be content with what God has given to us. So here he's saying, is, is it nothing that this temple's being built? Uh, I'm with you. This work is important. Uh, be strong. And we can compare the other thing too, former times, to what is happening today or think. And sometimes people will come to me, and um, particularly when we first came to Greece, well, I remember back in the Jesus movement. I went to church and attend and all these people, thousands of people. And here, you know, we have this little work going on in Greeley. Uh, kind of like making you feel like your work is not important. But, and that may not be their intentions, but that's the way I would feel. It's like, you know, here I am. I got a handful of people. We got this little place. And, and I know it isn't like what was back in the Jesus movement. But here's the thing. What God is doing in our present day is very, very important. And we were just as much as the church in the early days when we were downtown, had a little building, when we first moved in here with just a few people as we are today. So God, he's the one that is working. He's the one that gives the increase. He's the one that adds to the church daily such as should be saved. And it's a glorious thing as we just look to him and continue to trust in him. And then in verse 4, yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, be strong, Joshua, 
the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord. And according to the word that I uh, covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. So much that is here. First of all, the promise of his presence. As he says, I am with you. He says, be strong. It's a work of my spirit. It's a work of my spirit. So you don't have to be afraid. I like that. Be strong. Do the work. Know that I am with you, the promise of his presence. And don't be afraid. And that is a direct word for you and for me. That we can be strong because we have his presence. He is working. It's the work of his spirit, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And we don't have to be afraid. And in verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while. I shall shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Interesting verses. Some say that it was actually speaking of the second, the second temple. Now, it was called Zerubbabel's temple. And then before the birth of Jesus, Herod the Great comes on the scene. And he expands the temple to where it became a magnificent temple. And we've talked about that going through Matthew's gospel. It ended up being destroyed in 70 AD, but very large stones overlaid with gold, large courtyards, and the Gentiles would come from the nations, and they would come into Jerusalem during the feast to see the magnificent temple. Uh, The Greeks came to Jesus in John's gospel. Remember during Passover, they said, we wish to see Jesus. Why were the Greeks there? The Greeks were there because they believed in many God and grander the temple, grander the God. And it was to be a witness of God's goodness to the other nations. Jesus says that you've made my father's house uh, a den of thieves. Uh, My father's house, which is a house of prayer. He's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah that says that my father's house is a house of prayer to all the nations. So the nations were coming, and Jesus was in that temple. He wasn't actually in the temple, but he was at the temple proper. And so some say that perhaps it's speaking of that, or it's probably speaking of the millennial temple when Jesus comes to rule and reign that we looked at very carefully going through Ezekiel chapter 40 through 46. It says the glory of the Lord will fill all the earth. And the glory of the Lord is going to fill that temple because Jesus is going to be in that millennial temple. And as all the nations are going to come up to celebrate, as we know from Zechariah chapter 14, the Feast of Tabernacles. So the glory of the latter will be greater than the former. Uh, so I think that is speaking of the millennial temple. Some have said, well, maybe it's speaking of the second temple that got expanded. But I think the millennial temple is, it makes sense to us as he says, the desire of all nations. I will fill the temple with glory. As you read those chapters in Ezekiel, that the temple is full of the glory of the Lord because Jesus is there at that time. In verse four, uh, 10, that is, of chapter 2. On the 24th day of the ninth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, so as we read this, verse 12, if one carries holy meat in the uh, fold of his garment, and with the edge he torches uh, 
touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai in verse 13 said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. So uh, the third word of the Lord to Haggai, the priests are asked these questions. In verse 12, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, you know, and uh, with the edge of he touches bread or stew or wine or oil, any food will become holy. And I said, no. In other words, you cannot impart holiness to somebody else, to something else. You can't impart it. I can't do that for you. And I think sometimes people say, you know, that, that they look to a minister or to a pastor to impart holiness to them. You see that. Lord, you know, bless me and, and, and uh, I need to be blessed by you. Listen. We will pray for you, we will bless you, but I cannot impart holiness to you. The second question in verse 13 is, one who's unclean, can you transmit uncleanness? You can defile somebody else. That is that you have touched a dead body, uh, you're unclean, and if you touch somebody else, you defile them. But I cannot, cannot impart holiness to you. Uh, in other words, I can't transmit a, a flu to you, COVID to you, some of you, but not health. I can't transmit health to you. That is something that the Lord does. And when I can encourage you in health, but here is he says, can you transmit uncleanness? You can file somebody else. Um, and then in verse 14, uh, living in the Holy Land and offering sacrifices will not make the people holy. In other words, he's saying, don't go through the motions. But the priority is of the heart that needs to be there to be holy, to give your heart to the Lord. And that's what God wanted them to do. And that was to do that with a heart for the Lord as they built the temple. I never want to get to the place where I just do in my ministry, going through the motions or don't have a heart for it because it's not right. It doesn't honor the Lord. And we can go through seasons where... You know, we get down and discouraged and all those things, but we don't want to just go through the, the motions. We want to be obedient to the Lord, do it out of devotion to the Lord, not just out of duty. So, you know, we can get so busy with the work of the Lord that we leave God out of that work. I think about this as in the book of Revelation, the letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus. He says, I know your works. Man, you're, you're busy and you're, you're faithful in doing that work and you stand on truth. But he says, the one thing I have against you is you've left your first love. We never want to leave our first love and what the Lord would have us to do. And then in verse 15, and now carefully consider from this day forward, uh, from um, before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephods, uh, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight, verse 17, and mildew and hail from the labors of your hands. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month and the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. It is the seed still in the barn, as yet in vine, 
the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit from this day. I will bless you. So he's saying, he's confirming, I will bless you. I will bless you. God had tried to waken them out of their spiritual sleep and when they were lacking, but they didn't turn to the Lord. So put your priorities now. From this day forward, put your priorities back in order and I'm going to bless you. Confirming, as he says, consider me, consider what I'm saying to you. And it's true with you and me. As you prioritize the Lord in devotion to him and living for him and serving him, that he's going to bless you. Don't think you're going to lack. Don't think that, that because I'm missing out, because I'm not doing my own thing or living my own way. I will bless you is what he says. If you live for self, you're going to lack. If you live for Christ, you're going to be blessed. That's what he's telling them, and it's true for us today. And then as we finish the book, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai in the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So now this this uh, message to Zerubbabel, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. And in that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, and says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So here's the, the fourth message. Um, they seem to be insignificant to the other nations, but not to God. And God will be with them. He rules. He's going to rise up. Zerubbabel, you lead. Uh, that's what is told to him. In the lineage of Zerubbabel would come the Messiah, Jesus. We see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And he speaks of the tribulation period, that when he comes back, I'll shake heaven and earth, overthrow the th- throne of kingdoms, as the Lord will establish his kingdom and that Israel will be restored once again. But Zerubbabel, know this, that you are to lead, that I am with you. You don't have to be afraid. It's a work of my spirit. It's an important message for us here today. So I hope this little book was an encouragement. We're going to look at the second prophet that's going to be speaking to Zerubbabel, Zechariah, over the next few weeks. Zechariah is an incredible book. Hope you can join us for that. As Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this little book of Haggai that reminds us to not neglect you, Lord. The work that you're doing in us is the work of the Spirit. The promise of your presence is given to us. Not to neglect what you have for us and to do it with joy. To know that you will bless and that you will provide and that you will strengthen us. It's the work of the Lord that you desire to do in us. So there are many things that will distract us, Lord. We don't want to be distracted from what you have for us. So wherever you've placed us and opportunities given to us and gifts that you've bestowed on us, that, Lord, that we would be faithful to you and grow in our devotion to you. And, Lord, just enjoy you, the joy in our hearts and peace and satisfaction and real purpose. Lord, this life is short, and we don't want to just live for ourselves. But we want to live for you. So, Lord, thank you for these important reminders. And may we be ones that even as they were exhorted back then, that we're exhorted today, consider your ways to honestly go to you and say, Lord, am I missing something? Is my heart not right? Lord, am I neglecting you? Um, if I'm not prioritizing what I should be prioritizing, other things are coming in. And having priority over you or what I should be doing. Lord, to just 
know that you lovingly desire to speak to our hearts, to convict us, and it's to draw us to you, not to condemn us. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders. I pray you bless everyone here that's listening. I also want to pray for those who are sick. I know a number of people in our church that had COVID. I pray for healing. I pray, the Lord, that this COVID, would, as it's running rampant, would begin to decrease and you bring healing to us. But I do know this, that there may be unrest, there may be uncertainty, there may be a pandemic, but the gospel is going to go forth. It's not going to stop. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have our confidence in you. But I do pray for your healing touch and that, Lord, that we remember that you have a work for us and you'll complete that work. So, Lord, thank you. I pray bless everyone here. Looking forward to meeting on Sunday as we continue through Matthew. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Hope we do see you on Sunday. Oh